But I will often see women start off talking about their abortion in such a way of, you know, it was my choice, it was what was best for me at the time. But as they're talking about it and going through it, eventually they'll start talking about their loss and their grief. Caring for Both, a curbside consult series by the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where medical professionals answer your questions about what it means to provide evidence-based, life-affirming health care to both pregnant women and their pre-born children. We know that every day in your practice and on your rotations, you face clinical situations that are challenging. We've all called a curbside consult when we need a quick second opinion on the best course of action for a patient. This podcast series is meant to serve as a curbside consult for you as you face ethically challenging patient care scenarios. Hear from experts on how they approach these situations and tips for how to think through them. Because we know that your lives are busy, we keep each episode short enough for you to listen to on your work commute so you have the support and information you need when you need it. We upload new episodes every Thursday. I'm your host for today, Miriam Diallo. In today's cultural and political discourse, the topic of the relationship between abortion and women's mental health is hotly contested. Faithfully serving pregnant patients, however, requires cutting past political narratives and offering them the best available information, as well as prioritizing bringing about the best possible outcomes for them as individuals. Here to offer an evaluation of the psychological literature, as well as insights from her own practice, is Robin Atkins, LMHC. This will be a two-part episode. The second half of this conversation will be uploaded next week. Robin Atkins is a licensed mental health counselor who has been in practice for over 15 years and has operated her own practice since 2015, specializing in reproductive mental health. This includes serving patients who are dealing with infertility, high-risk pregnancy, traumatic birth, postpartum depression and anxiety, pregnancy loss, and more. She sits on the APLOG board of directors and serves as chair of our mental health subsection. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with a quick question about you. Tell us a little bit about your specialty, reproductive mental health. Um, How did you choose to pursue this field? I like to tell people it chose me. It was not a field I was even aware of prior to experiencing some of my own pregnancies in which I was seeking out mental health support for complications during pregnancy and post-birth. And I could not find anyone in my area that either specialized in that or that could access, for example, the NICU where I was at with my son after one of my pregnancies. What are some of the defining features of your specialty? How do you focus on um, helping women through aspects of, of their mental health related to reproduction? That's a really great question. A lot of times when I tell people I specialize in reproductive mental health, they first off assume that it's related to reproductive losses, which is definitely one of the main features of the patients that I see. I also though see patients dealing with infertility or high-risk pregnancy or traumatic pregnancy and traumatic birth. And I think one of the things that differentiates someone who specializes in this particular subspecialty versus someone who doesn't is a lot of the medical knowledge behind what goes in goes on during infertility or pregnancy or labor and delivery or even postpartum, as well as just some of the language around these topics and the very different experiences different people have within 
these reproductive events that happen. And so there's a lot of vulnerable populations that have experiences that someone who didn't specialize in this might not be aware of, um, just for a lack of having that ever come across the information. Um, as well as I see quite a few men dealing with infertility, and I think that someone outside of this specialty might not see that either. That's definitely a really broad swath of different subjects that you are able to speak to, which definitely makes you qualified to speak on today's topic, which is abortion. The topic of the relationship between abortion and mental health is a controversial one. What insights does the psychological literature give us on this topic? I love this question so very much. I think the number one insight the literature gives us is that there is no consensus. There is lots of literature that if you cherry pick it will say there are no mental health complications to abortion. And there's lots of literature that if you cherry pick it might say there's only mental health complications after abortion. And what I see in the literature over and over and over again is that there are certain conditions that predispose someone to mental health complications after abortion. And most often those same pre-existing conditions are the reasons women are choosing abortion. And so I think that throughout the literature, what I see repeated over and over again is there's increased risk of anxiety or depression or suicidal ideation or drug or alcohol use or abuse post-abortion. Those are also complications that women might seek abortion out because of. And we don't know if there's causal relation or if there isn't causal relation. So some people might say the literature says there's no causal relation. Well, we don't really know. Some people might say the literature says there is causal. Well, we don't really know. But what I do know that isn't necessarily literature related, but is more evidential or experiential is I work with plenty of women who tell me directly that their grief and their trauma is related to their abortion experience. Thank you so much, Robin. One of the organizations that is taking the stance that abortion doesn't have any effects on women's mental health is the American Psychological Association. They state that obtaining a single abortion early on in pregnancy of an unwanted pregnancy poses little to no risk of adverse effects. Where does the discrepancy come from? What evidence are they using? And why is your position different? So my understanding of the American Psychological Association's position on this is based off of the American Counseling Association's position on this from 2008. In 2008, the American Counseling Association published an overall kind of portrait of what they saw with mental health and abortion. And within that, they had used a few studies to determine the results. And so there were very few studies used, and of those studies used, the efficacy of those studies are in question. And so I think what the American Psychological Association's perspective is based on is a small amount of research that may not be something we can use to predict any individual person's response to an abortion and have decided to unfortunately make this a political topic rather than a clinical topic. And so the difference maybe between what the American Psychological Association might suggest and what I in practice might do or what APLOG as an organization stands for is the American Psychological Association can make a broad statement that you know, there's little t risk after one abortion in the first trimester. And what I would say is each woman is different each man is different and each experience of abortion is different and so we need to meet the patient where they're at and hear them out rather than suppose based on research that one organization polled to make certain claims is sufficient to treat our patients with now. That's super important and, and really helpful for, for medical professionals to remember is to treat 
each of their patients as individuals. Uh, in the media, too, one major source of data that ostensibly supports the claim that restricting access to abortion negatively impacts women's mental health is the Turnaway Study. It's a longitudinal uh, perspective study examining the effects of unwanted pregnancy on women's lives. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Turnaway Study? What, what are its findings? And maybe what are some critiques of it? Sure. I love to talk about the Turnaway study, actually. The Turnaway study was a five-year study that was done with participants from abortion facilities in 30 different states, or 30 different abortion facilities, I should say, across the United States. And what happened was clinic workers would approach women after an abortion and ask them if they could ask them a few questions and if they wanted to participate in the study. And this is where the problems with the study initially begin. First of all, they approached well over 3,000 women and just over 1,000 agreed to participate. And we know nothing about the two-thirds that chose not to participate. Secondly, we do not have any script for how women were approached, so we can't even duplicate this research. We don't know how women are approached. We don't know why they were approached or why they weren't approached or um, who decided who was approached. So we can't duplicate this uh, research, and so we can't really say whether or not it's efficacious from that perspective. Um, I would hope that the clinic workers would, out of the kindness of their hearts, not approach women that were visibly distraught to ask them questions immediately after. That would seem kind of um, to ignore the moment that they're in and the trauma they might be experiencing in that moment. So I, I'm going to assume those clinic workers had the best intentions and that they weren't doing that, which would mean there's women that were left out of the study that would maybe give us a more well-rounded look at how women respond to abortion. And then on top of that, as the five years went on, we see more and more and more women dropping out of the study. So at the end of the study, there's only 17% from the original 3,000 plus approached remaining in the study. And out of uh, that turned out to be about 360 or so participants. And given that there's well over a million women who have had abortions, I don't know that we can say the experience of 360 who remained, 17% of the original cohort that remained, or the original people approached that remained, represent millions of women and their experiences of abortion. But the most concerning part of the study to me is the way that the results are given out either in news media or in white papers, which seems to suggest that because of a woman's financial or physical or health conditions, which could have multiple factors at play, their mental health is not better off. And so when you look at the women that are actually turned away from the study, by five years after the study, 97% of them were grateful they did not have an abortion. They were mentally fine with parenting, enjoyed parenting, loved their children, and no longer wished to have had an abortion. But that is so often not spoken about when you look at the turnaway study that's presented in the media or in white papers or even in research papers. Often they'll talk about a woman's financial well-being or if she's had health issues, but there's so many different confounding variables to that. And we, I mean, what did she come into the abortion for? If she came into seeking an abortion for a health condition, and that was a pre-existing health condition, and then five years later that's a health condition that's worsened, that's not worsened because she didn't have an abortion necessarily, that's worsened maybe because that's the progressive nature of that illness. And so there's just so much lacking information to say, these are the reasons, abor lack of abortion is the reasons these women are in the situations they're in or facing the struggles that they're facing. And so I just don't find this research study to be 
very honest look at what women's true experiences of abortion are, whether they have one or don't have one or are turned away, or why their life might be where it's at in the moment that they're being asked these questions. That's really interesting. So there's there's a lot that the study doesn't look at that it should um, in order to provide a more holistic look at the true holistic effects of abortion on women's lives in general, and especially their mental health. That's really interesting to know. Would you say that there are any important insights that the Turnaway study does provide that that's helpful for us? That's a hard question to answer. I think on an individual basis for someone who's treating abortion trauma, there's definitely some insights into that study for me. But I, again, I would caution anybody from extrapolating anything from the study to the general public or women in general. And that includes the portion where it says 97% of women were grateful. They didn't have the abortion later. I, I would never assume that with any client walking into my office. But what I did take away from this that was helpful was looking at the different ways that the topic of abortion is discussed based on who's doing the research and what they want to convey out of the research. So just watching the language around the way abortion is talked about, the way reproductive loss is talked about. So often when I see abortion research from those who are pro-choice, not all the time, but often I'll see it as the loss of a potential child. But the woman sitting in my office that's grieving or is experiencing trauma does not talk about her abortion loss that way. Um, the women that are showing up in abortion recovery groups um, in different social media platforms aren't talking about their losses that way. And so that's a very specific framing of a loss that comes from more of maybe a political perspective than a research perspective. And so it just gave me more insight into maybe the difference between how politics or media might present this topic, how it's done within research, and then how I actually see it play out in my office. Could you speak a little bit more to what the kind of framing and what the kind of language you do hear from your patients are in your practice? Yes, that's a really fascinating topic for me. So I don't disclose to my patients my private history. I have had an abortion, but I don't disclose that at the time, and I don't disclose to them my political perspectives, and I don't ask them theirs. But I will often see women who are self-identifying self -identifying at some point in their therapy as pro-choice start off talking about their abortion in such a way of, you know, it was my choice, it was what was best for me at the time, um, that's what needed to happen. But as they're talking about it and going through it, um, eventually they'll start talking about their loss and their grief and how what a difficult situation it was. Often I'll hear women saying they weren't given informed consent around what they might experience after abortion. So often they tell me they feel abandoned afterwards. So they had all this swell of support when they were considering abortion and lots of encouragement that yes, it's the right decision for you and this is going to make your life so much easier. But when it was over, that support all kind of goes away. And most often their relationships fall apart that they were in at the time, their romantic relationships, and they're kind of left dealing with the outcome of that abortion decision on their own. Um, what I also hear frequently, both from women who identify as pro-choice or pro-life in my work, is that the lack of informed consent about maybe pre-existing conditions that might make them more likely to struggle with abortion decision later, and other options other than abortion, like for example, are there resource centers in their area that could provide them for the needs that they might have? 
they'll tell me they're not even really asked why they're pursuing an abortion. And so that's not really counseling. So we hear a lot about abortion counseling prior to the abortion. Counseling would definitely ask, what are the reasons you're considering this? Who might be part of this decision? What is your social network telling you about this? What do you hear media telling you about this? How do you feel about those things? What are your thoughts about this decision? Are there obstacles in your way that if they were removed, this would be a different decision for you? And if so, do you want us to help find resources to meet those needs? And so they're not receiving that level of informed consent to know that there are other options may be available for them to make a different decision. And then later on in their life, they feel kind of hoodwinked, I would say, is the way they would talk about it. And I would say most often research shows us that it's about 10 years later is when women really start to unpack the event. For me personally, it was 19 years later. So if you had asked me anywhere in the first 19 years after my abortion how I felt about it, I probably would have dodged the question altogether. Um, I didn't even want to acknowledge it happened, more or less tell people how I felt about it. So it wasn't until 19 years later that I really began talking about it. And other women, it's around 10 years. Um, or when they get pregnant again, they'll start talking about the grief from it. That's all really interesting, actually. I, I hadn't thought about a lot of that, and I'm sure a lot of, of medical professionals haven't either. Based on all of those experiences you've had in your practice, um, based on what you're seeing, what would you say are some of the more important uh, gaps in the literature or framings of questions that researchers haven't uh, attempted yet? What are some ways forward, would you say, for, for researchers studying the relationship between uh, mental health and abortion? That's a wonderful question because I often think there's a disparity between what we see in research and what we see in practice, not just on the abortion topic, but on lots of things. And I think that's because you can't really do research that is all that close to lived experiences. And so but just by design, any quality research is going to have protocols and parameters around it that don't feel like real life, so to speak. So I think it's a difficult thing to study. But if I was to create a research project to look at abortion and mental health, um, first of all, I want to acknowledge that just by the fact that women are coming to my office, there is some kind of mental health problems going on. They may or may not meet clinical criteria, but there's some kind of mental health issues happening. And so I'm not typically hearing from maybe the women that are totally fine with her abortion. Um, I rarely have anyone, I don't know that I've ever had anybody in my office say they don't grieve their abortion. I do have some that don't regret it. Um, but the women that are just fine and um, don't have any, any issues with it aren't coming to see me about it. So I acknowledge that, that my, even my perspective is skewed from an experiential point of view. So if I was going to do research on this, I think I would want a very open-ended um, questionnaire for women having an abortion over 25 years. Um, granted, I don't know that that's ethical to do because I wouldn't want to encourage something that I think has mental health complications in order to do the study. But um, if we were going to do an, an abortion is going to be legal anyway, then it would need to be a longitudinal study that asked women very open-ended questions rather than do you feel X, Y, or Z? But how did you feel? What were the reasons you sought out the abortion, who was all involved in that decision making, did you feel you had adequate resources to make other decisions, um, all of those open-ended kind of questions so we could get a real full picture of what a woman's life was like prior to, right before, during the decision making practice, and then after. 
great thoughts there. Thank you so much, Robin. And thank you so much to our listeners for joining us today. Uh, this has been part one of a two-part conversation on abortion and mental health. I hope you will join us next week for part two.